0: Join me in reading passage from the book of Mark. Reading together. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. And then he turned to his, and then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save a life? or to destroy it. But they would not answer him. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. And then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. And Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples and a large crowd followed him.
1: We are going to be finishing up our study in Mark chapter 3 today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Spirit. And thank you for the fact that God is ruling and overruling and in all that happens in our hearts, our lives, our families, our churches, and the world. And so we come this morning before you and, and uh, worshiping and praising and thanking you and, and continuing that now through the study of your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts. May we receive what you have for us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Amen please be seated I've always been fascinated with uh, mountain climbing and um, especially the guys that climb with no ropes basically just you know their hands and their feet Uh, I saw a documentary called Free Solo which is a guy climbing uh, the biggest granite face in North America by himself no help and um I watched him and I thought, that's crazy. (laughs) Why would you do that? And yet, it was interesting to watch the process. It wasn't like he just woke up some morning and said, I'm going to go do this. It was a process of three years that went by as he prepared and worked over every piece of the face of that mountain in order to be able to do what he did in the two or three hours that one day. And so it just struck me as I was thinking about that documentary and seeing how they had taken this story and put it together in such a way that you kind of understood what had happened and how hard it had been, and then finally the triumph of being able to, to actually do the climb. And it made me think a little bit about documentaries, and I kind of looked up uh, the thought. And uh, one of the definitions for a documentary is a movie, television, or radio program that provides a factual record or report okay that's there's several definitions, but that's one of them uh, and and a really good documentary is going to give you the information and give it to you in a way that's interesting and and that draws you in and and, and so that you want to watch but is also not going to give you the opinion of the person who's making the documentary you 're not going to get their bias no matter what the situation is if it 's a a good documentary uh, it's supposed to be factual it 's not supposed to be fiction in any way But the second uh, definition for documentary is this. A documentary is a film intended to document reality. In other words, to record reality, primarily for the purposes of instruction, education, or to maintain a historical record. Now, again, I I understand there's documentaries out there all over the place, and some of them uh, may or may not even care about the facts. <laughs> um, but the re- but if a good documentary is going to be exactly that. They're going to give you the information in a way that makes you want to, want to learn what they're trying to tell you. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, I thought to myself, on one level, Mark is trying to do a, a written-down documentary. That's what he's doing. He took all of the stories and all the things that he heard Peter say, and he wrote them down. I'm sure he didn't have three-by-five three cards, but he probably had little pieces of parchment, and he had all of these pieces of parchment with things that Peter had said. Can you imagine sorting all that and, and working through all that and putting it into an order? And that's why as we studied the book of Mark, we see various things, like the five times that he wanted us to see the confrontation of Jesus with the religious leaders. Another person who wrote one of those was Luke. And uh, Luke in chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught." And so there you got, there's the, the definition of Luke's, if you will, documentary that he's gonna write. Now Mark has done the same thing, and uh, he's writing from Rome. He's been probably Peter's interpreter. If he needed to speak in, in Latin, Mark apparently was able to do that. And in, in that time frame that Peter and Mark were in Rome, the Roman Christians were saying, okay, we need more. We, we need more information. Remember, they did not have an Old Testament that they could actually go to. Um, and so they, they said, we need to have these things written down. And, and that was the impetus for Mark to begin to start taking all the things that Peter said and putting them together in a way that the church in Rome would be able to understand what was going on. Now, please remember that people from Rome had never visited Israel, didn't probably have a whole lot of understanding of Jewish law and so many times, Mark just kind of goes through and gives you, this is what he said, this is what he did, and look what happened. That's almost what he does all the way through the book. He doesn't give us all kinds of things. We don't deal with the birth. We don't deal with all kinds of other things. We deal with him getting baptized and getting started and getting out in the ministry. And that's what Mark was doing. So that's kind of his way of putting together um, <clears throat> his documentary, if you will. Now, let's start with verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples, and just so we can remember the context, just before this, he told us about the time he was in the, in the synagogue, and the man with a with hand that was useless, and the, the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders didn't want to say anything, and he went ahead and healed this man in front of all of them in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Okay, Their decision at that point was, oh, that's wonderful, let's kill him. That was their response to this incredible miracle. And so Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Uh, go ahead and put that map picture up there, Tim. I know you like maps. <laughs> he told me that. That's why I say that. Uh, and all the arrows that are on the map are there because they're, those places are in the verse. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan, on the east side, and around Tyre and Sidon, way up at the north, uh, and probably the places east of Jordan would have been uh, Perea and the Decapolis, those places as well. So you've got people now coming to Jesus from all of those places. Okay? Some of them are traveling over 100 miles in order to see and hear Jesus. Stop and think about that. Uh, they didn't jump in the car and drive they stood up and started to walk. And it was probably a three to four day trip at the very least as they walked along the Jordan and got up there to where Jesus was in Galilee. And so now Jesus is gathering people around and, and um, he doesn't even have to do it. They're just coming and they're coming and they're coming. And I, and I had to ask myself this question. Because as we're seeing this happen, it's not like Jesus sent out a message saying, hey, I'm going to be at the lake at this time. Why don't you all show up? Nothing like that, okay? And so I was thinking, all of these people, and some people feel that this, these were numbers in the thousands that were actually there. How far would I travel if my son or daughter were really, really sick and we'd seen every doctor we could and nobody could do anything about them. And we heard about this healer, this Jesus, who was amazing. He didn't charge anything. And, and everybody that touched him or that he touched were healed. Would I get out and start to walk for that? Yeah. I think I would and that's exactly what happened people are coming from everywhere and they and they want to just be near Jesus and touch him and hear him so they're listening to his teaching but a lot of it too is just saying you know what I I came all the way down from enemy all the way up here and my son can't whatever it was and touching Jesus healed him so verse 9 because the crowd because of the crowd he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. So he's on the shore and then maybe there's a, this sloped area here and people are there, there's, and they're, and they're just, like I said, probably thousands and they're trying to get close and they're trying to get close enough to touch Jesus. And can you imagine that group of people coming closer and closer and closer? Now Jesus is probably on the last two or three feet of the beach. And, and he's going to be in the water. And so that's why, and many people feel, it was Peter in the boat. And Peter would come along, and he'd jump in the boat, pull him back about three or four feet, and he could continue teaching. Um, just one of those things when you think through what was, what was going on. Verse 10, he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. And that was the thing. They wanted to touch him because when they touched him, they were here. Luke 6.19 puts it this way. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Wow. And this is a scene that we can't even imagine. This is, it's, it was so big and it was so amazing that people came from, like I said, from everywhere to, to hear him, yes, but also if there were those deep physical needs, they wanted those to be taken care of. So talking about Jesus and what's going on with the crowd. Verse 11 that goes to say, whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. And it's interesting, the evil spirits would see him and they recognized him. They knew who this was. The people in Israel thought of him as a healer, a teacher, all those things. They didn't yet, most of them realized that he was the Messiah that information and that kind of recognition was going to come, but the evil spirits did, and they cried out, you're the Son of God. They recognized who he was. Now, there's some who think that when they did that, when they're crying out, you're the Son of God, that they were thinking in some of the thinking of the day that if you could name the person or the power that you had control over them, and if that's the case, it certainly didn't work. Uh, And Jesus silenced them, and I think probably he silenced them because he really didn't think he needed the help of demons to get his uh, PR machine going. It wasn't necessary for them to be part of that. And so here he is, these demons come, they cry out, they fall on the ground, they're screaming, and he shuts them up, and he says, be out, come out of that person. Um, Again, we don't have the sense of People being demon-possessed, I'm sure there are, but not like this, where people knew, well, that guy's got a demon. You can tell by looking at him. I mean, look, he, he, the guy that lived in the tombs, it was obvious there was something desperately wrong. Um, so it's, it, it's interesting. Jesus rebuked them, and that's to admonish strongly with urgency and with authority. When Jesus rebuked the demons, they knew they had been rebuked. And they knew they could not speak any longer. And they knew they couldn't stay. Absolutely crystal clear. There's an implication here I want us to just take a look at real quick. Whatever the possessed evil spirits caught sight of him, this is in the New Living Translation, the spirits would throw them on the ground in front of him, shrieking, "'You are the Son of God!' But Jesus sternly commanded or rebuked the spirits not to reveal who he was. And so Jesus spoke to the demons, he commanded the demons, he rebuked the demons, and they had no option because he had the power and the authority to do what he was doing. Um, It's interesting because if you take that word and trace it back, when Jesus was in the storm on on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, And they wake him up finally and say, don't you care? We're going to die here. And he stands up and he rebukes, same word, the winds and the waves, and says, be still. And right then, in that instance, we're talking about like glass. You could see the reflection of the stars and how calm that sea was in that instant. Okay? Power over nature So there's two things here. Jesus had the authority to silence the storm, He rebuked it, commanded it to be still. And then he had the power to muzzle the demons, be quiet, and get out. And he had the authority and the power to do that. His power over the demons and over nature shows one reality. He is sovereign, in control over all things. Uh, There's nothing that is not under his power. Um, I don't know what you've faced today or this week, uh, what you've been going through. Maybe it's been a really hard week. You know, sometimes I'll go through a week and I'll get to the end of it and go, boy, I'm glad that's over with. Maybe you've had that kind of week. You know, one of the things that is always encouraging to me is that if God can rebuke a storm and a demon, he can handle whatever's going on with my life as well. And I, and I can trust him because I know that he's sovereign. He is Lord. He is over all things. The good, the bad, the easy, the hard. It doesn't matter. God is sovereign. The demons can't take him on. Nature can't take him on. And our response to him should be, oh, wow sovereign God of the universe is my Lord what an incredible incredible thing so how do we know we can trust him to work in our life in our situation look at the cross I'm serious stop and think I don't know can he handle what I'm going through well what did he do on the cross he took the sins of the world and paid for them with his own blood done paid in full so that anyone who would come to him and trust him that that payment was for them and believe that he did that for them can be saved forgiven and the sovereignty of god can be at work in their lives in new and different ways so we look at the cross we see the sovereign god of the universe who's stricken and smitten for us we see him hanging on a cross not because of anything that he did but because of all the stuff that I did and that you did. That's why he was on the cross. He did all of that for us. And so we deserve the death penalty for our own sins. It's been paid in full. We don't have to pay that penalty. We owe nothing. And as so I was thinking about the sovereignty of God, this song which we sing from time to time came to mind. Um, there's strength within the sorrow. There's beauty in our tears as you meet us in our mourning. And that's the sorrowful morning, not the morning of a new day, with a love that casts out fear. You're working in our waiting. You are sanctifying us. We are, when beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. And, and just the chorus. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You are with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. I love love that song. God is sovereign over all things, including us and everyone and everything around us. And we can praise him for his faithfulness and his love and his sovereign rule over all things. I think that's just one of the lessons we learn. Let's move on to verse 13. Um, So we've got this massive crowd on the the side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, perhaps thousands. And at this point, Jesus wants to get away, and he did that periodically. Uh, There's a lot of discussion as to which mountain he went up here. I have to be honest, I don't know. Uh, but people who study Israel and study the, the Sea of Galilee say, well, it's probably this one. Well, maybe it was. All I can tell you is that he went up on a mountain, must have been a um, big enough one and hard enough one that the crowd didn't come. He was by himself. And he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Look at Luke 6.12. gives us a little bit more information about what happened. Luke 6.12. <clears throat> one of those days... Um, Jesus went out, Tim, could you put Luke up there, please? Uh, One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying. That's the connection there. So uh, he spent the night praying to God, and when morning came, he called the people to him that he wanted to be disciples. That's just a little bit more information that we get. Uh, when we look at Luke and his description of what was done there. Verse 14 says, "...he appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach." and to have authority to drive out demons. So there's three things that Jesus wanted them to be with him for. Now, he's had people with him all along. He's had some of them, four or five of them at different times. But this is when he finally says, I'm going to call 12 people into whom I'm going to pour my training and my efforts so that when I'm gone, they can carry on. That was at this point that this all begins to happen, about a year or a little bit more into his earthly ministry. And so he appointed the 12 Designated them apostles, three reasons he wanted them. That they might be with him. One of the things we never see about Jesus is that other than times when we wants to be alone with God, he's someone who's with people always. But he wanted them to be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Okay? So he got these twelve guys. He said, I want you to spend time with me, be with me. We're gonna we're gonna train and pray and spend time together, and then I'm gonna send you out to preach. And I'm going to give you authority, the third thing, over demons. I've asked this question of myself, and I have no answer for it. Why in the world were there so many demons in the people of Israel? I mean, they're everywhere. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's throwing demons out. He's sending 12 more people out there to do the same thing. This is a nation that had some serious issues spiritually. And for being God's chosen people, this is not something... It reflects well on how they were following God. And so he says, I want to have you be with me. I want to spend that time with you. I'm going to send you out, and I'm going to give you authority uh, to be able to to drive out demons. And so he chose the 12 people who would be witnesses of the ministry, that they would learn from him, and who would be qualified to carry it on after, after he had ascended into heaven. Now, the verse that struck me was verse 4. He appointed 12, designating the apostles that they might be with him. Incredible. What an amazing thought when you stop and think about it. That Jesus had this desire to have these guys with him and that they would be walking with him and talking with him and and dwelling with him and, and all of those things. It's a very, very rich word there. And it's an expression of a union that's really precious and special. Jesus is calling them into a relationship that the others did not have an opportunity for. This was unique, this was special. Um And then he sent them out to to preach and to drive out demons. Now, the the disciples are all mentioned here. And everywhere the disciples are mentioned as a group, you'll find Peter is the first one mentioned. And then Judas Iscariot will be the last one. All right. In this case, it tells us uh, that, you know, uh, he used to be Simon. Jesus named him Peter. And we've got James and John, who are the sons of thunder. uh, And people have all kinds of speculation as to what that means. Perhaps it just means that they were really passionate. About the things of God. And so uh, there's that going on. And then you've got James, uh, or Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, uh, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. So Peter's mentioned first, Judas Iscariot last. There's an implication here that, that I was really encouraged by. Um, verse 14 He appointed 12, designated them apostles that they might be with him. And I thought about that. What does it mean that they would be with him? And I think it, it meant they traveled together, they walked together, they, they spent a lot of time uh, wherever they went. They were with Jesus. They were walking with him. They were spending time with him. They were talking with him. They were listening to him. Didn't matter where they went. Didn't matter what they were doing in that sense. They were with him. They were in a relationship with him. Um, and, and when you think about that, all of us are called into a relationship with Jesus. Now, we're not the 12 walking with him and actually being in Israel, but we are walking with him today when we come to him and we believe and we accept him as Savior. That that whole idea is that he created us for a relationship with himself. And when we believe and receive him, then that relationship is is what we are to be living out, that walking together with him. Um, That's why he says to us, come. Come. That's why he says, come to me if you're worried. That's why he says, just come to me. Be renewed. All the way through the Gospels, you hear Jesus saying, come, come. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 is one of my favorite passages. Uh, these verses here, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. That's pretty cool, And not have been worrying or burdened this week. Jesus says, Come. Come to me. And he says, I will give you rest. So come to me if you are weary, you're burdened. Uh, you look at what's going on and say, Lord, I don't know if I can make it this week. I don't know how to do this. Jesus says, come. I'll give you rest. And then he says in verse 29, take my yoke on you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And... Um, A yoke is something that was shaped so that two animals could be together in that yoke and they would be able to pull together. If you want to see what a real one looks like, come back in my office and I'll show you one because I have one on the wall there that uh, Doc and Jody gave me. And um, for me, it's a daily reminder. I'm supposed to walk with him. I'm supposed to walk with him in the yoke. That's That's what I'm called to. That's what we're all called to. We're not called to go out and make it on and just try to make it on our own. And then all of a sudden, at the last minute, when things really go badly, say, Oh, help, 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 help. I I, want to be with you again. We're supposed to be walking with him. Now, when we wander off, there's always, always the opportunity to come back. But I love this. Come to me, all you who are weary, burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Learn from me. Why? I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. How many of us need rest for our souls this week? All the things that <clears throat> we see, that we hear, that we experience. Sometimes we just need to go back and say, Lord, I just, I just need to be with you, walking with you. I need rest. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we're saved and we enter into that relationship with Jesus Christ, he calls us to be with him, just like he called the disciples, to be with him. And how close can we be? Well, side by side, if we want to be in the yoke with him, we can walk with him wherever we need to go. Um, How close can we be? As close as you can in the yoke, walking together, side by side, trusting him, walking with him. Why? Well, Jesus said, come. Be with me. Walk with me. And he invites us to do that. And that it takes our effort, if you will, to put trust in him, that no matter what's happening around me, no matter how desperate things may be, that the answer is always, I'm with him. I'm with him. I'm trusting as I walk that I'm walking with him. And and when we think that the load is too heavy, remember that if we're walking with him in the yoke, he's going to be carrying... Most of the weight. And no matter what we face, no matter what's going on, he wants us to be with him, walking with him. And so to be with him means walking together in the yoke. Let's move on to verse 20. We have an interesting thing here in verses 20 and 21. We've got Jesus' family brought into the picture. Then you've got this big discussion about the the, uh, unpardonable sin, and then you've got Jesus' family again. So it's almost like these two things are sandwiched around this kind of interesting passage that that, uh, we struggle with sometimes. So verse 20, then Jesus entered a house, probably in Capernaum, maybe it's the same house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat, okay? So things are so busy, there's so much going on, there's so much ministry that there's not even an opportunity to take a break and, and, and get something to eat. <clears throat> when his family heard, and they're in Nazareth, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And take charge of him means to restrain or take him away, take him into custody, To seize forcibly, that's the idea here, that we need to go take charge of him because clearly he's nuts. He's just flipped his lid. He's crazy. Okay, That's what the family thinks. And so while they're coming from Nazareth to Capernaum, this confrontation with the religious leaders takes place. Okay? And let me just say right up front, I want to just share this and spend a couple minutes on it, because there's so much nonsense that gets said about the sin that's unpardonable. And I just want to kind of get to that and share it so that we can kind of get through that a little bit to the other side. The teachers of law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now, these are the big shots from Jerusalem. We don't know if they're still there from when they were at the, um, in the synagogue and Jesus healed the man with a hand that, that was useless. Uh, this may be just kind of all in that same time frame. We don't have exact uh, indications of time going by. But they're there, and they're saying, hey, you know, we know how this guy's doing this. All the stuff he's doing, that's the power of Satan. That's what's at work in him. Now, stop and think about that. These are the people who saw him take the man who had a hand that was totally worthless, say, stretch it out, and he healed it instantly. And their response was, this guy's got to go. Let's kill him. Okay, Those are the people who are saying, oh, he's just doing this because he's in league with Satan. It's Satan's power that's giving him the ability to do all these things. I think the crowd and Jesus himself were probably a whole lot sharper than they thought they were. Jesus said to them and spoke in parables, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless first ties up the strong man, and then he can rob him. So Jesus just kind of all of a sudden just says, okay, so you're saying Satan is behind all of the things that I have done, including me taking demons and sending them away. So uh, Satan's given me power to toss out all of his demons. And and, you know it's almost like he's looking at them and saying, what is wrong with you people? How can you even come up with this silly, silly statement? Not even silly, it's blasphemous. And we're going to see what he says about that. And so Jesus says, it it makes no sense. Satan doesn't war against himself. And then he goes on to say this in verse 28. I tell you the truth, all sins and all blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Okay, so that's an important statement. Because all of the sins that are out there, all the things that men do, all the blasphemies that they commit, they can be forgiven. Now, they're not automatically forgiven. You have to come and, 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 and ask forgiveness. You have to come and be saved. But there's one exception. All these things can be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Okay, it's a big word, never he is guilty of an eternal sin. This is not just a sin. This is the worst sin you could ever commit. And it's an eternal sin. There's no way for it to even be ended. You're going uh, to be condemned. <clears throat> he said this because they were saying, and this is the reason he said this they were saying about him, he has an evil spirit. So what they were saying is Jesus is demon-possessed, and that's why he's doing all these amazingly good things. Now, that makes no sense, but that is what they were saying. Now, again, remember in the context what's going on here. The religious leaders have been watching Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle. Thousands of people have come from all over to, to hear him teach and to watch what he does and to have There are sick people healed. That's what he's been doing. And these guys say, no, 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 no. He's doing this because he's demon-possessed, and it's Satan's power. So again, think think about that. Um, Jesus looked at him in that synagogue, and he was deeply distressed because they wouldn't say, yeah, it's probably a good thing for you to heal this guy. They were silent. They wanted to accuse him. So the religious leaders... And, and, and don't be confused about this. The religious leaders <clears throat> are saying basically this. Don't confuse us with any of the facts about what's going on. He's evil. We've made up our minds about that, and that's the end of it. That was their discussion, and that was their end, end goal when they got to the end of it. <clears throat> now, implication. Uh, let's read, it, read the passage again. I tell you the truth. All sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. And he told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. All right, now what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Um, Comes down to three things. Let's go ahead and put that next one up. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is seeing the power of God at work miraculously doing all of the things that Jesus was doing. Seeing that power... And giving Satan all the credit. Okay, so Jesus is doing all these miraculous things. He's healing all these people. People are being, uh, you know, received in incredible ways. And God is working amazing things. And they see the power of God working through Jesus and they say, He's demon-possessed. Satan gets the credit for this. That's the blasphemy right there. They take something that God is doing, the Holy Spirit is doing some powerful, incredible things, and they say, no, 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 that's not God, that's Satan. And in saying that and doing that, they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And why did they do it? Well, it's the whole idea of deception and confusion. They wanted him gone. Now, just kind of a couple of quotes here that I think will help us think this through. The unforgivable sin is blasphemy, which is a defiant and irreverent, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the context of the Spirit's work through Jesus Christ, okay? This scene here was not redone anywhere else, and it hasn't been since this time. So the unforgivable sin has to do with this immediate situation. We always have to keep that in mind. Second thing, the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day committed the unpardonable sin by accusing Jesus Christ in person of being demon-possessed. Okay? So they took all the amazing, wonderful, spectacular things God was doing and said, that's not God, that's the devil, and he should die. That hardness of heart, the turning away from God who was bringing the Messiah like he promised. They said, no, 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 we don't want. And that was the blasphemy of the Spirit. Now, Karen and I were talking about this this week, and um, she shared with me that in her church, um, they had given some some ridiculous teaching, uh, sad teaching about the blasphemy of the Spirit, and she lived for a whole bunch of years in fear that she could somehow commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and never be saved. Okay. Now, that's just not understanding the Scripture, not understanding the passage. But she didn't know that, and the teaching that she had received was unfortunate. Um, let me just put it this way. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was specific to these religious leaders in this situation where they said what Jesus was doing was not being done by him, as being done by Satan, because he was demon-possessed. It cannot be duplicated today because Jesus is not here on earth doing the things that he did back then. So this sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he says, this is what can't be forgiven, guys. And they're all looking at him as he says this. When you guys do this, that's a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and you will not be forgiven. That was condemnation right there. Their doom had already been proclaimed The only, if you want to say there's an unpardonable sin today, the only one that there is, is if a person refuses and rejects the message of salvation. Does not want to hear it, does not want to hear it, rejects it, refuses it, refuses the salvation freely given. When they die, there's no other chance. So that sin is unpardonable. And they go to where they've chosen to go, which is their destiny uh, in hell. So I, I don't want to belabor this, but I just want to really make sure we get the, the fact that uh, that's what was going on here. Now, Paul said this, we know that anything can be forgiven except what they did at that time. Everyone, verse 13 of First uh, Timothy, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. I love that. What does he say? I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent man. God showed mercy. Why? Verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am the worst. So we thank God for his grace and mercy and his forgiveness that he offered. Now very quickly, let's go to the next few verses where all this happened while the family's traveling down to get Jesus. Verse 31 then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. And so they send someone in, and, and the thought here is that they want to have a one-on-one meeting with him apart from everybody else. And the reason for that is so they can grab him and take him home. That's, that's the thought that's there. Um, and so someone comes to, hey, your mother and brothers and sisters are out there. Um, and Jesus says in verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, looked at his disciples and those who were listening and, and part of what was going on, and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. is that cool? I, I, I went through that this week as I was studying and and, and I, I wondered, first of all, and we're not told. But I wonder what happened with the family. It's obvious that Joseph is no longer there, and and Jesus was the one responsible for you know, providing for the family and training his brothers so they could eventually take over that business. And yet here they all come after having lived their lives with Jesus and Mary too, and they're thinking, "Well, he's absolutely crazy. We need to take him home." And and somehow that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, Maybe they thought that he was supposed to be the kind of Messiah that would come on a horse and kick out the Romans and set up his reign, and that wasn't happening. And they're hearing about all these things he's doing, and they're saying, what is going on here? That's possible. We do know that Mary treasured the things that happened in her heart, and, and she heard the people prophesy about Jesus, and she saw the angel and listened to what the angel said. So it's not like she didn't have some information there. And, and this is the hard part for us. We don't know. What was going through their minds, we can only assume or guess or whatever. Um, now, did, they, did Jesus eventually go out to talk to them? We don't know. My guess? Totally me. I think that he probably did because he had respect for his mothers and his family. He had to go out there and explain what was going on. And if you know the demons and all those who came against him couldn't take him and Pull him away, then family couldn't do it either. So that's my thinking, that he did go and and have a chance to talk with him about that. But the part that struck me the most, and this is our takeaway, verse 35, Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. I thought about that. Uh, Everyone who's saved, everyone who is a believer, everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus and his death on the cross to save them, is born again. And in doing so, we are born into a new family. We are born into the family of God. And, and think about this. Those who maybe were the only person saved in their family, or people who were saved and then others were you know, maybe killed as a result of their faith, and they're the only ones left, maybe they're the only family member left to hear, no, 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 you're part of my family. My family. First Peter 1.3 says this. All praise to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. The mercy of God. We're born again. We're made brand new. We become sons and daughters of God. That's the mercy and grace of God when he saves us verse 23 first peter for you have been born again but not into a life that will quickly end your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of god and so we become part of this family and this family will never end that's why if you're traveling some time and you have a chance to visit some folks in another church if it's a church that's Bible believing and teaches the Word of God, you're with family. You're with family. I've had the privilege uh, many years ago to travel to Bangladesh where there's some incredible persecution of Christians. And I went to a Christian refuge village. And many of these people had been in a village somewhere and evangelists had come through and they'd been saved and taught a little bit and the evangelists had moved on and, and the families were taken and Harshly treated, sometimes for days or weeks. And when they could escape, they would leave everything behind and go to the refuge village they'd been told about. Think about it that way. Here they are, they're, they're new believers, and they've suffered already for Christ in incredible ways. And they arrive in the village that are all believers, their family. And so it doesn't take long for them to begin to be part of things and be part of learning how to do a job somewhere else and learning how to provide food and and just every day listening to the Word of God being taught two times, three times a day. But the most important thing, they're with family because they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that were there were people who had also... And so they had lost everything on one level physically and gained way more as they became part of the family of god let's pray thank you lord jesus thank you for coming to this earth and going through all of the things that you did thank you for teaching and for teaching others to keep on going and teaching them to teach others And the so lord just thank you for the way you, You have worked in the hearts and lives of men and women right from the very beginning. I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters in this place. What a joy, Lord, to be able to celebrate who you are with others who also hold that same amazing and wondrous belief. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the salvation that you provided